Our reading today is from Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. The, uh, the text for the sermon this morning is Psalm 99. So if you turn to uh, Psalm 99 and uh, we'll read the whole psalm. So Psalm 99, beginning at verse 1. <coughs> the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice, you have established equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God 
is holy. Well, I invite you to uh, keep your Bibles open there as we work our way uh, through this psalm. But did you know that here in Australia, there are more than 100 sacred Aboriginal sites? <clears throat> the most famous, of course, is Uluru, right in the heart of the country. <clears throat> sacred places in the landscape have special significance and meaning for Aboriginal people. They can be rocks, hills or waterholes, or plains, trees and billabongs. For Indigenous Australians, the land is full of sacred places. But now, what about for us as white Australians? What sacred spaces do we acknowledge? Do we have any sense of the sacred? What is our equivalent? What sacred sites do we have? Well, for most European Australians, church buildings don't cut it. Beautiful cathedrals don't even make the grade. It's been suggested that for most Australians, the only sacred place in the country is the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. That's the only place that, for many Australians, is a sacred site. So white Australians have little sense of the sacred. And that leads logically to my next observation, and that is that secular Australians have it the foggiest when it comes to holiness. They bandy about expressions like holy cow, holy smoke, or holy mackerel but they have no idea what these expressions mean or where they come from. And yet, of course, all of this is deeply religious language. Holy cow is from Hinduism. Holy smoke is from Catholicism. And holy mackerel or holy Moses is from Judaism. But ask people what the word holy means in expressions like this, and you'll probably be met with a blank stare or worse. You might be told off for being a sanctimonious fool and told to mind your own business. Now, Christians, of course, have far more of an idea of what holiness means. If you ask a Christian what it means to be holy, you will be told that to be holy is to be like Jesus and therefore different from the world. So there's a positive side to holiness, Christ-likeness. And there's also a negative side, and that is being different from the world, from the society around us. But then, coming to the holiness of God, how do you understand that? If we are to be like Jesus, and if we are to be different from the world, how does that apply to God? Well, of course God is like Jesus. Of course God is different from the world. But we already knew that. So in what sense is God holy? What is God's holiness all about? Well, that's one tough question. And the well-known Presbyterian preacher, James Boyce, put it like this. Holiness is not an easy concept to understand or define. In fact, it is impossible to define it adequately. 
The most common mistake we make is to think of it primarily in terms of human righteousness. That is, we think of it as moral perfection, purity or right conduct. Holiness involves this element, but it is far more than this. At its root, holy is not an ethical concept at all. Rather, it is the very nature of God and what distinguishes him from all else. It is what sets God apart from his creation. It concerns transcendence. Well, that's a great little paragraph from a famous American preacher. But is Dr. Boyce right? Is holiness simply the characteristic of God that sets him apart from his creation? Is it all about transcendence? Is it about the fact that God is wholly other? Being W-H-O-L-L-Y, other, being wholly other. Is that what God's holiness is all about? Well, of course, the best way that we can answer these questions is to answer them from Scripture. And there is no better place to begin than here in Psalm 99. There God is called holy, not just once or twice, but three times. And no wonder Charles Spurgeon called this the holy, holy, holy psalm. And there's also something else that we discover when we look closely at this particular psalm. And maybe you've noticed it already. The word Lord, all in capitals, occurs seven times. And that is in the Hebrew, the word Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, occurs seven times. And of course, that's very important. In the Bible, the number seven represents perfection or completeness. And so throughout the Bible, that's what the number seven represents. It is the complete and perfect number. And I dare say that Psalm 99 is the perfect and complete description of God's holiness. And so this psalm is also divided into three stanzas. And each ends with a declaration that God is holy. Verse 3, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse 5, Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And then finally in verse 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. But now the question is, how is God holy? How do we see his holiness? Well, these are precisely the questions that this psalm is designed to answer. With each of the three stanzas, we get an ever fuller answer to these questions. And the topics of these three stanzas will also be the three points to my sermon this morning. So firstly, stanza one is about God's power and greatness in verses one to three. Then secondly, stanza two is about God's justice in verses four and five. And then thirdly, stanza three is about God's faithfulness in verses six to nine. So let's begin with verse 1, which is stanzas one to th verses 1 to 3, and it's all about God's power and his greatness. So this is the first way in which God demonstrates his holiness. He is powerful 
and he is great. Now I wonder in what ways you have experienced the power and the greatness of God. Well, I'd like to tell you about a couple of experiences that I've had and have made a deep impression. Perhaps the best road trip that my wife and I ever took was when we drove across America from east to west. And when we got about halfway, we met a lady who asked us where we were going. And we said, well, we're heading to San Francisco and from there we fly to Australia. And she said, before you get to San Francisco, make sure that you visit the Redwood Forest. It will be a spiritual experience. Well, we were planning to go down the California coast anyway and so we were keen to take up her suggestion. But we were prepared to wait and see whether it would be a spiritual experience. Well, when we drove through the Redwoods, it was a beautiful day. It was late summer and all the crowds had gone. And as we drove down the avenue of the giants, there were these trees growing a hundred metres into the sky, way above us. We could hardly see the tops of them. And at their base, they were wide enough for a car to drive through. Everything was picture perfect. But was it a spiritual experience? Well, let me read to you a poem by Joseph B. Strauss, the builder of the Golden Gate Bridge. And I'll let you decide whether this could have been, in fact, a spiritual experience. His poem is simply called The Redwoods, and it goes like this. He is sown by the Creator's hand, in serried ranks the redwoods stand. No other clime is honoured so, no other lands their glory know. The greatest of earth's living forms, tall conquerors that laugh at storms, their challenge still unanswered rings through 50 centuries of kings. The nations that with them were young, rich empires with their forts far flung, lie buried now, their splendour gone, but these proud monarchs still live on. So shall they live when ends our day, when our crude citadels decay. For brief the years allotted man, but infinite perennial span. This is their temple vaulted high, and here we pause with reverent eye, with silent tongue and awestruck soul, for here we sense life's proper goal, to be like these, straight, true and fine, to make our world like theirs a shrine. Sink down, O traveller, on your knees. God stands before you in these trees. That's how Joseph Strauss responded when he saw these towering giants. All we could do was look up and say, wow. Well, on the trip across America, we crossed through the state of North Dakota. 
And North Dakota has been nicknamed the Siberia of America. And Nancy asked me, is Australia as desolate as this? And here we were going along a four-lane highway, complete with exits and overpasses. And I said to her, you haven't seen anything yet, honey. And so on our first holiday, we made it a point to go to the outback town of Broken Hill. And we drove there from Sydney. But before we got there, we were overtaken by nightfall. All around us, there was nothing and nobody. There were no city lights. There was not even any dust because it had rained a few days before. And as we looked up, all we could see was one vast Milky Way. Stars that stretched from one horizon all the way to the other. We had never seen a night sky like that before. The night sky was just ablaze with stars. Now, neither of us can hold a tune. But as soon as we got into the car, we couldn't help but sing, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. You see, when you see the night sky like that, you can't help but burst into song, whether you can sing in tune or not. But of course, we had to borrow someone else's words to express how we felt. As we looked at those starry hosts, we felt the same as when we looked up at those giant trees and we went, wow. But is that an adequate response to God's holiness and majesty and grandeur? Is it enough when you see something of the splendour of God in creation that you go, wow? You know, if we take the Bible seriously, I think we'll realise that there is more to it than that. Do you remember what Isaiah said in the passage that Alvin read for us? What did Isaiah say when he saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, sitting in the temple, all and smoke filled the temple. His robe filled the temple. And when Isaiah heard the seraphim cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. What did Isaiah say in that situation? Did he say, wow? Or did he say, woe? Woe is me, for I am undone. In the appreciation of God's holiness and grandeur, I think there may be some of us here who need to move from wow to woe. You know, any pantheist or new ager can say wow. It doesn't take a whole lot of spirituality to realise how small we are in comparison to God or even to his creation. It takes a whole lot more spirituality to see how sinful we are 
and to cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Have you made the transition from wow to woe? You see, this is where the psalm begins. The Lord reigns. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the king in Isaiah's vision. He is sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the whole earth is full of his glory. And he also sits upon the cherubim. Now what's so special about that? Well, for a start, the Jewish commentator Robert Alter has reminded us that these are not the dimpled darlings of Christian iconography. They are not the weaponless cupids of religious art. In other words, they are not chubby little boys with wings. In the Bible, they are fierce and fearsome creatures. They are angels. And we first meet them in the Garden of Eden. After the falling to sin, they are given a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Like the seraphim, they are mighty angels who are close to God and who guard his presence. They live in the holy of holies. You don't mess with them. If you do, you're as good as dead. So then how do we respond to the greatness and the power of God? Well, if you look closely at our first stanza, you will see that an adequate response is twofold. Let me read verse 1 again. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth quake. You see, the people are to shake and the earth is to quake. They are to be like the overwhelmed Isaiah who said, woe is me. Now, listen to a description of God from just a couple of psalms earlier. From Psalm 97, this is what it says. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, the Lord of hosts. What these Psalms teach us is that there is a terrifying side to God's power and greatness. Yes, he is the maker of the redwood forest. And yes, he is the creator of the furthest galaxies. But if he reigns and is enthroned above the cherubim, then he is also sovereign over volcanoes and tsunamis and avalanches and bushfires. And he is also sovereign over a little virus that we have called COVID-19. The impact of this little virus around the world has been to remind us that God is in charge and we are not. For believers, 
It has come as a reality check. And for unbelievers, it has come... <coughs> sorry. <coughs> for unbelievers, it has come at a, as a wake-up call. We can't pretend that we are in control or that we are invincible. Our programs falter. Our plans collapse. Our businesses need to be on life support. These are unpredictable times, but so is every other time. Now, whether you say that God ordains these things or that he simply permits these things, he is still sovereign. He is in charge. He is in control. He is also frightfully powerful and unspeakably great. He alone is holy. Therefore, let the peoples tremble and let the earth quake. But the psalm moves on. In, in verses 2 and 3, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. You know, the psalm doesn't just leave us shaking in our boots, but it sets us on our feet and has us sing God's praise. Yes, we can burst into song when we see the dazzling beauty of the night sky. And yes, we can write a poem about the wonders of his creation. His greatness and his power demand our praise. God's greatness and power are expressions of his holiness. Therefore, let us praise his great and awesome name, for he is holy. But then his holiness is not only shown in his greatness and his power, but now secondly also in his justice. And that's the theme of the second stanza in verses 4 and 5. Listen to how it starts in verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And that first line is such a powerful statement. The king in his might loves justice. In God there is a perfect union of might and right. See, he doesn't abuse his might because his actions are always right. He loves justice. And notice the trio of terms here. In the one verse, we meet God's justice, equity, and righteousness. And it all lines up with his holiness. His holiness is righteous. His holiness is equitable. And his holiness is just. And that's why I have trouble with the, the quote from James Boyce earlier, where he says that at its root, holy is not an ethical concept at all. Really? Really? When his holiness is righteous and equitable and just, as it says so clearly in verse 4? How could it be otherwise? God is the very source of our morality and ethics. Be holy, for I am holy, the Lord says in the law of Moses. And then he gives a whole bunch of moral commands. He tells us how to live ethically. 
Without God's moral character, there is no basis for morality. Without his holiness, there is no basis for ethics. But now let's return to God's justice for a moment. The king in his might loves justice. Now what does that justice look like? Well, let me just give you a few examples from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 21, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. And then Proverbs 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. You see, not only does the Lord love justice, he also gives just laws, like the Ten Commandments. Now, let me give you a quick sample from a few other laws in that same context of the Ten Commandments. It says in Exodus 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. In other words, crime doesn't pay, but being a victim of crime does. Now, say someone steals your car, takes it on a joyride and totals it, walks out scot-free, the driver, okay, all fine, but your car is a write-off. Well, the person may be fined, maybe even get a jail term, but you don't get your car back. Under the laws of Moses, you would get four or five cars. How good is that? You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, the Lord says. Well, how does that compare to Australia's treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. Were there detention centres in ancient Israel? You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You see, and so it goes, law after law, rule after rule, precept after precept. Israel was to be a just society a place where it would be a joy to live, a great place to raise a family, a place where women and children would be safe. It was designed to be a model community, to be God's beacon to the world. And what was the basis for all of that? Well, again, the psalm puts it so well in verse 4, the king and his might loves justice. You have established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And how do you respond to a God like that? Well, you praise him. And that's exactly what we're told to do in the next verse. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. But now you might ask, well, where is his footstool? Well, God's footstool, as we're told later in the psalm, was his holy mountain. It was Jerusalem, and more specifically, the temple that Solomon built. And so what does it mean to exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool? 
Well, it's a call for God's people to come together and to worship him in his temple. And by extension, it's a call to us to come and worship him as we're doing this morning. And as we do that, let's remember that we exalt the Lord for his power, for his greatness and for his justice. But there's more. And this is the third point. We are also here to worship God for his faithfulness. And that's the message of the third stanza in verses 6 to 9. God's holiness is not only shown in his greatness and power and in his justice, but also in his faithfulness. But how does God show his faithfulness? How is he faithful to Israel? And how is he faithful to us? Well, the first way is through answered prayer. Listen again to the words of verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called on his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. You see, these three men all had priestly roles, even though Aaron was the only one among them who was actually the high priest. But what does a priest do? Well, a priest is an intercessor. A priest prays for his people. Now think of Moses. Remember how he prayed after the golden calf incident. Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, he said. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and now his grammar just breaks down, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. What a prayer. Moses really meant business when he prayed for the people of Israel. And then there was Samuel. And once again in his time, the Philistines were threatening to attack Israel. The lords of the Philistines had banded together and with a whole horde they were going to invade Israel. And the people were afraid of the Philistines, so they said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. And then it says that Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. The Lord threw the Philistines into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. But now how about us? How does God answer our prayers? How has God recently answered the prayers of this congregation? Well, let me be bold enough to give you a few examples. We prayed for two expectant mothers here that they would give birth to healthy babies. And that was not a foregone conclusion. But that's how it turned out. God heard our prayers. And the other week, or weeks, we prayed for Barry before he had major brain surgery. And the following Sunday, I saw Barry in church and I went up to him to say, was that operation postponed? He was back in church the next week after major surgery. And he said, it's God's work. God guided the hands of those surgeons and I'm making such a good recovery. God heard our prayers. 
And then another prayer that God has answered, which not everyone may be aware of. It was just hinted at last week at Clinton's farewell. Did you know that a year or so before Clinton came here, he was really struggling with health issues? So much so that his doctor said, hmm, you're probably not going to last till Christmas. He was only given months to live. And here, he's served us in good health for the last 11 years. And just a small answer to prayer. Remember the other week when there were so many people in church and we had Lord's Supper? And I was sitting at the front here and I thought, ooh, is there going to be enough to go around? And there was exactly especially for the bread. I think there might have been one short on the cup. <laughs> so some gracious person <laughs> missed out. But God just answers our prayers as a congregation in such remarkable ways. So God shows his faithfulness by answering our prayers. And that's an expression of his holiness. And he does it also by giving us his word. Now in verse 7, the psalmist again uh, cast his mind back to Moses and Aaron. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. Now it's really interesting when you check back this reference. How did God speak to Moses and Aaron in the pillar of cloud? Well there's one answer for Moses and there's another answer for Aaron but together they really form one answer. Now Moses would meet with God outside the camp in the tent of meeting. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And then it says, thus Moses used to speak, sorry, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. How remarkably privileged Moses was that God would actually speak to him face to face as a man to his friend. Now there are only two people in the Old Testament who are called friends of God, Abraham and Moses. They enjoyed a wonderfully intimate relationship with the Lord. But what about Aaron? How did God speak to him in the pillar of cloud? Well, Aaron's story turns out to be rather different. Aaron and his sister Miriam were rather envious of Moses and his intimate relationship with the Lord and his special prophetic gift. And so they speak of their brother Moses with contempt. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Well, he had. But then God summons them to the tent of meeting and he also speaks to them in a pillar of cloud. But these are not words of intimacy, they are words of rebuke. This is what God says. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then? Were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then when the cloud lifted, there stood Miriam 
the principal offender covered in leprosy as snow. And Moses said, God, please heal her. And the Lord did. She was healed. But for her act of public rebuke, she was publicly shamed for seven days and was not allowed to enter the camp. And so God spoke to Moses and Aaron in a pillar of cloud. And then it says, they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. In other words, Moses and Aaron responded to God's holiness by keeping his commandments. And the same could be said of Samuel. Now, some of you may remember the series of sermons that, uh, that Clinton gave on Samuel. And when you read about him in Scripture... There's not one bad word said about him. Samuel was a model saint. And so when it comes to Aaron, Moses and Samuel, God showed them his faithfulness by answering their prayers and by speaking his word to them. Now again, hasn't God shown his faithfulness to us in the same way? Again, we gave thanks for Clinton's ministry last week and he brought the word of God to us engagingly, clearly, persuasively, often words of encouragement, but sometimes also words of warning and of rebuke. God has shown his holiness to us by speaking his word to us through Clinton over these past 11 years. God has shown his holiness to us in that way. But verse 8 then picks up that thought and also reminds us of another dimension of God's faithfulness. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. Now I'm sure we'd all like the verse to end right there. That sounds really good. But it continues. You're a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. See, all these people knew that they were dealing with a holy God, a God of justice. We've already seen that with Miriam. She was afflicted with leprosy for a week and was made to live outside the camp. And Moses and Aaron were to learn the same lesson. In the arid wilderness through which they were going, of course the people were thirsty. And so they asked Moses and Aaron if he'd give them to drink. And God told them to speak to the rock in the hearing of the assembled congregation. But instead, Moses lost his temper with them and he struck the rock twice with his rod. The water gushed out, the people drank and their livestock drank. But this is what God said to Moses and Aaron. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. God forgave Moses and Aaron for their rash action. But their action had consequences. They were not able to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. You see, you can be forgiven, but your action still has consequences. Moses and Aaron were forgiven, but their actions had consequences. Miriam was forgiven but her action had consequences. After the children of Israel worshipped the golden calf, they were forgiven, but their action also had consequences. 
You know, and the same is as true for us as it was for them. We live in the same moral universe as they did. And it is a universe run by a holy God. God can forgive a student for plagiarising from an unpublished thesis. But in his providence, he can also have that student's work marked by the author of that thesis. God can forgive young men checking porn on the internet in the dead of night, thinking that they will never be discovered. But they are, and they have to face the consequences. God can forgive a man for having a furtive affair on a business trip. But his wife finds out and his marriage is in tatters. God is faithful. God is faithful to forgive. But God is also faithful to himself and to his own holiness. He has to be true to himself. He has to see to it that sinful actions have consequences. If not now, then certainly on judgment day. How will you be when you come face to face with a holy God? How will you be when you see him in all his purity, in all his justice and in all his holiness? On the last day, that great day of the Lord, how will you stand before the great white throne? How will you stand before a holy God? Well, we've learned that God is holy in three ways. God is holy in his power and in his greatness. God is holy in his justice. And God is holy in his faithfulness. And all of that shines through most clearly on the cross of Christ. On the cross, he showed his faithfulness by keeping his promises and fulfilling so many Old Testament prophecies. On the cross... God executed his justice, even at great cost to himself. And after the cross, he displayed his greatness and his divine power by raising Jesus from the dead. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If we want to be acquitted, if we want to be declared not guilty on the last day, then we must all come to the cross of Christ while there is still time to plead for his forgiveness and grace. It is still available. So grab it with both hands. It's freely on offer. Only Jesus can transform the seat of judgment, the throne of judgment, into a throne of grace. Has it happened for you? Come to him. Come to him before it's forever too late. In closing, I want to read a poem about God's holiness. I wrote it 10 or 12 years ago, but I think it's a good summary of the message, and it goes like this. The Lord our God is holy, while we are small and lowly. His holiness we cannot see. He's three in one, a trinity. 
Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. As mortal creatures here below, the Father's holiness we can't know. We think but by analogy, avoiding every parody. He's whiter than the whitest snow, brighter than the brightest glow. Our God is a consuming fire, our awe and terror to inspire. The second of the three in one and equally holy is the Son. If we his holiness would see, then look no further than the tree. The perfect man reflecting God in all our earthly ways he trod. Tempted, tested, crucified, he was sinless till he died. If we of holiness can boast, it's only in the Holy Ghost. God's perfect image marred by sin, he recreates our hearts within. The beauty of the Holy Son, he makes it shine through us, each one, till we appear without a taint, each and every one a saint. Let us pray. Our dear Lord, we thank you that you are a holy God. And Lord, it's a concept that we find it hard to get our heads around. And yet, Lord, you have displayed it, you've demonstrated it in ways that we can all understand and appreciate. Oh Lord, again, we thank you for what you have given us in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that every single person here may one day appear before you, before your throne of judgment, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, having been made pure by the Holy Spirit and having been prepared for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.